Thank you very much for downloading the Trap One podcast. This episode is being released on Doctor Who Podcast Day, the 9th of August. Please check out the hashtags DWPD and DWPD2023 and also follow the Twitter account at DWPDay. But not before you've listened to this brand new episode of Trap One. Thank you for downloading the Trap One podcast, a proudly people-powered podcast which this week is delivering a review of Pete McTide's target novelization of Kablam! I will be respecting the punctuation of the title and exclaiming Kablam! wherever I mention the book's title, but not the company, uh, just the story's name, but this is of course optional. I'm Mark and I am pleased to be joined by some fellow organics. A man who is host of the Essential Doctor Who Literature Podcast is no stranger to a target book. It's US Jason. My podcast can be found at Doctor Who Literature on all your podcast apps of choice. I am on Twitter at DR Who Novels and I am on Kerblam Prime. Customers who listen to US Jason may also be interested in Keith, who's also here. Hello. And completing our shopping basket before we click to checkout is Fraser. <laughs> Hello. Welcome, everybody. So, so first of all, if we go around the room, what did we all think of Kablam when it was broadcast in 2018? Not as the back cover of this book would have it, 2019. I enjoyed it first uh, when it was broadcast the first time round. I thought it was um, a very sort of punchy, fast-paced story, a lot um, more aligned to... The, the Doctor Who would had in the previous series from RTD and, and Moffat. Um it was it didn't feel quite as chibnally as the others. Um I think that the, the second half of series eleven for me had that effect, you know, it kind of felt a bit more, you know, traditional, shall we say, though even though traditional in the sense it literally just means a couple of years previous. Um so oh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And Keith, we podcasted about this episode for Trap One after broadcast, scarily enough. That was five years ago, nearly. And that's terrifying. And as I recall, we both kind of liked it. We did. I re-listened to it, actually, because I couldn't be bothered to watch the episode again because I'm going, I'm doing a, a grand rewatch and I haven't got there yet. So I thought I'd try and remind myself a bit that way. And I am being very careful to be not say I found the early episodes quite boring. <laughs> <laughs> By emphasising the fact I really... I liked this one. I thought it it filled the new because it's like the episodes are slightly longer, aren't they? At this point, the I think we're fifty minutes or nearly an hour per yeah, episode. Are we so, by yeah. now? So I think it was filling the it, it felt the time out better. And uh, yes, I liked that one. I was quite relieved to have got that episode to uh, do on the podcast in that infancy. It was. It was very early days then. And Jason, you awarded this story an A minus during your lockdown pilgrimage, describing it as the most fun and energetic story of series eleven. Has your opinion changed on that? Not at all. What's funny is I came in here expecting a fight. I thought you guys were all gonna say that season eleven was the greatest season in the history of Doctor Who, and that Kerblam was one more high point in a long series of high points. Instead, I find that I actually agree with you guys. For me, season 11, for the most part, didn't work. I enjoyed some isolated moments along the way. This episode came right after Demons of the Punjab, which I really enjoyed. But before that was the Saranga conundrum, which didn't work for me. Part of the problem is that Doctor Who was on Sunday nights, and I had spent the previous 13 years on a Saturday night schedule. Sunday night is a school night. Can't stay up late. I just never had time to watch the whole episode on a Sunday night. So I download it. I'd watch half. I would finish the next day. Then as season 11 progressed, I found myself waiting until longer and longer in the week to finish the second half of the story. So by the time we get to the battle of Rumpelstiltskin, I didn't finish that episode for three <laughs> weeks. Kerblam spoke to me in a way that almost nothing else in season 11 spoke to me because it was energetic. Like I said, it had a point to make. It told it with verve, and it told it with flavor, and I have some issues with the last 10 minutes of the story. I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but it didn't do enough to spoil the whole thing for me. I just enjoyed it, and when I watched it again in my pilgrimage, most of the new series did not work for me in my pilgrimage, and I came away with much lower opinions of RTD and Moffat than I previously had. My opinion of Chibnall went up, and... 
Kablam worked just as well for me in the rewatch, which a lot of other new who did not. So that's where I'm coming at. This is one of my favorites from the season, and nothing else is really that is really that close behind. Yeah, and I, I was similar as well. It's one of my favorites of the season, but but like you, the the last few minutes made me feel a bit uneasy. I came away when, uh, as I'm sure, it probably mean the same thing when the doctor says the system isn't the problem; it's the people. When the system has just killed an innocent girl to make a point, um, and it, I was very interested in this book how it addressed that, mm. and and whether it kind of redressed uh, that that balance uh, in any way as to uh, as to how it was how it was handled. So uh, that's jumping to the back of the book. So we'll uh, <laughs> we will. So get that's there. it for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that we'll get there with that, and obviously. Spoiler warning for anyone that hasn't read the book yet and that plans on reading the book, we will be talking about the end of the book, like we already have. Yes, I always forget to put spoiler warning. Well, that raises, a, that raises a good question. I mean, anybody who is over the age of 15 will have seen Kerblam when it originally went out. This is not like the target novelizations in the 1980s when The Dominators comes out and hasn't been on TV in 20 years and nobody realized how bad it was. Hi, Fraser. Everybody has seen Kerblam, except if you were five years old in 2018 and you're 10 now, you've never seen Kerblam. Everybody else knows a chapter and verse, which begs the question, Mark, what is the demographic of the Trap One podcast? Because over on Doctor Who Lit, 93% of my audience is age 35 and up. I'm just curious if you have a bunch of 15-year-old listeners who are too young to have seen Kerblam when it first came out. I don't know what our, our demographic is, other than that just really cool, intelligent people. But I think the thing in the UK is that since Series 11 was broadcast, these episodes have constantly been available on the iPlayer for that whole time. So, you know, I think we're away from that, that idea if you didn't see it. You know, anybody with an interest in Doctor Who has picked it up since broadcast or anything. You know, it's, it's been very readily available in this country anyway uh, for that time. And yet we're buying Target books, which when I bought them originally is because we didn't have VHSs. So the only way to do it, I mean, in terms of spoilers, I mean, chapter three basically says the AI did not send for the Doctor. So that gets rid of any mystery about who, um, about the AI doing it. So do we need spoilers in books or do we, are, are people aware of what the plot is and we're just reading it to see how it compares to the TV version or just for nostalgia or we buying it for completionism for me it's it was just what mark said you know this one jumped out to me when all the targets were announced um because obviously i'm quite aware of the criticism um people ties got from that last 10 minutes of this of this story um personally i didn't have an issue with it i still don't have an issue with it i think it's it's quite clear what uh, Pete Matai is going for, and he makes it a lot clearer in this book. Um, but it really, you know, came to me um, when I saw that list of, you know, this is a book I want to buy. This is a book I want to read because I want to see what the difference is. You know, has he actually addressed that? And if so, how has he done it? Um, so in terms of, you know, like, spoilers are high, um, you know, if there is going to be changes in the book, then, yeah, we could have watched this this episode to death on the iPlayer, but you know, when the original author gets the opportunity to re release it as a novel, um, the, temp the the interest is always going to be what have they done differently, what have they added, what have they taken away, what have they um, included and excluded. Um, so that, that was what drew me to this book, to be honest. And there is a pretty major addition to the late end, the late portions in the end of the book, which is not on television at all. So I guess we will spoil the major addition to the end of the story, which doesn't really affect the A plot, but it does show up in the background twice. And they fundamentally change a character as well. Um, is it Slade? The, mm. uh, he's just basically a, an unpleasant boss who twigs something's gone wrong in the TV version. Here, they've changed him to an undercover investigator who has to disappear at the end to cover his tracks. And I didn't like that. I, I much preferred him to be a just an unpleasant person trying to do good things for maybe bad reasons. Whereas here, the, the fundamentally changed him into somebody who's come in to find out what's going on. And I thought that was less interesting. 
my suspicion is that was the original draft because over on Doctor Who literature, we're reading the classic target novelizations. Those were primarily based on the original script submitted by the writer before they got changed in rehearsal and by the script editor. My reason for saying that I am pretty sure this is based on Pete McTighe's original Kerblam submission is because Ryan does not have dyspraxia in the book. No. On television, we learn that he has dyspraxia, and we learn that you can overcome dyspraxia just by wishing and hoping to make that jump, which, as someone who has dyspraxia, that's not how it works. That's not even remotely how it works. In the book, he doesn't have it, and that would only be the case if McTighe submitted his draft before he knew about that rather clumsy character beat. So that is missing from the book, Ryan's dyspraxia. I suspect that the private investigator thing was always there and was taken out by Chibnall because it was one plot point too many. And the other thing is, Jason, you attended a live commentary on Kablam at Galley in 2020, where you tweeted that the script originally had the Doctor taking delivery of a piece of celery from Kablam <laughs> in the TARDIS, which obviously in the, in the TV episode, it's a fez. But the book then has a reference to the doctor saying, could have been worse, could have been a stick of celery. So I'm that feels like he's. You, I have no recollection of tweeting that at all. I have no, <laughs> no recollection of going to the live commentary. It's almost as if somebody else. I have no recollection of that in the slightest. Whatever that was has gone out of my memory. I am hearing that for the first time. I'm glad to hear it. Well, there's been a pandemic since then. Uh, yes. Plus several million uh, brain cells lost as I uh, reach 50 years of age. A lot of my old memories are no longer with us. <laughs> so I thought one of the themes that really comes to the fore in this book is, is how the characters of the, the guest characters has been shaped by their childhood experiences on Kandoka of the human labor versus automation, often violent disputes and how they have then reacted to that in their work life and adult life. In particular, uh, we've got a much, much more expanded backstory for the character of Judy Maddox. And in fact, the whole book opens on her 10th birthday. Uh, and then we get flashbacks to her past seeded through. This, this I thought was really important for the wider illustration of, of what the world is like. Um, and also, you know, what life is like on Kablam, because we get the scenes of what it's like living there and the employees' accommodation and things. What, what did we all think of that? Personally, I was incredibly shallow about it because her father was a postman and her mother was a nurse. And I used to be a postman and now I'm a nurse. So I was, <laughs> so I was just totally focused on that and couldn't be see anything beyond it, I'm afraid. So it was just me, me, me. <laughs> I I yeah, enjoyed the the fleshing out of um you know the the supporting characters um you know Judy's backstory we get a lot of we get a bit of Charlie's backstory as well and we get a bit of Kira's backstory as well the thing that struck me is they are all similar they all have um the same sort of um background in terms of especially Charlie and Kira who have lost parents in the civil unrest that's followed the the automation and obviously you can see the power there that you know charlie goes one way kira goes the other but ultimately they're both orphans and they've both you know lost lost the parents due to you know what what's led to kablam basically and that leads to the really big change in judy's backstory and motivation you can fast forward ahead 60 seconds if you haven't read the book yet but the reason why Judy comes out of the protests as an orphan with a good heart is because the seventh doctor and ace rescue her and give her a lecture on great power. With great power comes great responsibility. Charlie is also made an orphan in the same protest, and he becomes a villain because the seventh doctor and ace did not pick him up and give him a lecture. So that was interesting. How quickly did you guys realize that this was the seventh doctor and ace showing up in Judy's backstory? I think immediately when they said yeah. a, a strange red-handled umbrella <laughs> yep. and the description of Ace, um, yeah, that was uh, yeah, pretty much straight I'm away. Like, why does it matter that this person has a ponytail? Oh, ponytail and red umbrella. Okay, I see where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but again, you know, Kira doesn't have that intervention from the doctor. It's Judy has the intervention. Judy is safe from the, 
the riots by the Doctor and Ace, you know, Kira doesn't, you know, and it's it's a very subtle change in the um in the novelization. You know, it's we don't get a Kira chapter. You know, we'll get several Judy chapters, we'll get a Charlie chapter, but don't get a Kira chapter. So it's just kind of chucked in there that, you know, I lost my parents in the riots. Um, but that that was what struck me, especially on the second time round, was making that connection between Charlie and, and Kira. Um, and obviously, like you say, Jason, um, you know, Judy has has that intervention from the Doctor, which sets her down a, an, a, a different path as well. So we have three futures for these characters you know, all stemming from what could essentially be the exact same event. Did you think it rather cheapened Judy, though? Because she was only being nice because the Doctor got involved, whereas other people aren't because the Doctor isn't involved with them. She couldn't just be sort of, like, nice on her own, own terms and wanted to be good on her own terms. It had to be because the Doctor did something. I think she only remembers that at the end, though, doesn't she? I don't think it's something that she constantly carries with her and, and, and remembers all the time. I, I got the impression that something sort of triggered that memory in her. And that, that she is quite like that as a person anyway. They've all sort of chosen the way that they will interact with Kablam, the company, and the state and the way that it works. Do you think so... they'll dramatize it for the uh, box set when they finally bring it up? Do you think my tile will do it for that? Because uh... so, Kira talks about her um, sort of philosophy to life is just, oh, to think about the customers at the end of it. Um, Judy's thing is to look after the people and, and put them first and then Charlie's thing is obviously to sort of murder continue his parents um kind of more radical approach and uh, and try and blow blow everything up. So it's kind of an attitude, isn't it, I suppose, that's been that they've then chosen on the back of similar backgrounds in a way. I mean Kira does not have a lot of agency in the book. I would like to see an extra chapter in the book where the eighth doctor materializes in her childhood and tells her when you're 37 years old and the bubble wrap comes to you don't pop it and that changes history and she survives <laughs> well the sixth doctor comes along and sweeps her up at the end no the sixth doctor is what have told Charlie blow it all up blow it all up <laughs> and that's why we love him I like. I did like the explanation that Kablam's bubble wrap is is even more inviting than the bubble wrap we have now. Described <laughs> yes. as softer, squidgier, and more irresistible. <laughs> I had an urge to grab sheets of bubble wrap and just sit there popping them while I was reading this book. Yeah. <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a parent of children who have um, got sheets, big sheets of bubble wrap from electrical appliances, put it on the floor and then rolled across it on the floor. Um, yeah, bubble wrap's great. So, so what we've been we're talking about, Judy, there, uh, we've got the first of two guest readings from the brilliant Nathan Bottomley from Flight to Entirety, Maximum Power, and the Untitled Star Trek Project podcasts. So we'll hear the first of those now. It was the middle of the night when Judy stirred from sleep. The sickly green lights from the shared walkway outside penetrated the flimsy curtains and leaked into her eyes. But as she woke, Judy noticed another light source from inside their tiny flat. A warm amber glow coming from the kitchen. Judy padded into the kitchen in bare feet, the tiles cold against her skin. She found her father sitting at the table with a large piece of cardboard and a little tin of paint, concentrating under a desk lamp. He looked up from his work with a loving smile. Couldn't sleep? Judy shook her head. Her father patted the chair beside him, motioning for her to sit with him. Without a word, Judy crossed to the table and sat. She could see now that her father was painting letters onto a sign. Big shouty capitals in thick black paint. Jobs for people, not Rob. Who's Rob? She wondered to herself, before her father carefully added the last three letters to his sign and sat back to take it in. Jobs for people not robots. This is important, her dad solemnly announced, breaking the silence. If we don't do something now, when you're grown up, there won't be jobs left for anyone. And who knows where that'll leave us? In a right pickle, I reckon. He put his arm round Judy and held her close. She could smell a familiar, sickly sweet aroma on his breath and knew it was the alcohol that her mum had been scolding him about lately. 
Her dad picked up the glass beside him and drained it of its honey-coloured liquid. Then he kissed her on the top of her head and they sat there, staring down at the side. So I think the world is fleshed out a little bit on on the moon of Kandoka as well. When you hear about the employee accommodation, um, you get the, uh, this is where the 10,000 employees live. And it all sounds like quite nice and cosy that they live in cottages with gardens. And then McTeague drops the word just temporary in there. And it really stuck out because it sounds quite nice and idyllic. And then he says the temporary homes. And that's like the first little hint because it's very early in the book that it's not a safe and secure world and, and place to live and work. Um, and this idea as well that everything that they need is within five minutes walk of where they live. It's like that 15 minute city idea, isn't it? To uh, sort of cut down on pollution and everything that, that wherever they are, they've got gyms and, and uh, restaurants and everything is, uh, is, is right there for them. Does it sound like a, an enticing place to live and work? It's other than the murder. <laughs> It's a space sweet bill, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, or um, Bourneville or something. Yeah, well, it? it's, um, you know, get your, get all your employees together, you know, like you say, put them close to where they need to work and then you can get more work out of them, basically. I think, you know, we're, like you say, we're, we're kind of five years down the track with this from initial broadcast. I can remember at the time of broadcast, the theme was very much, you know, Space Amazon. You know, this is Amazon. You know, it's not Kablam, it's Amazon. And mm-hmm. it was really kind of going for the jugular of 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 Amazon and their work and practices, you know, this this idea that you're gonna be um, you know, tied to a job and you're gonna be um, you know, monitored so closely on your you know, your your toilet breaks that you're gonna end up weighing in a Lucasade bottle at your at your station because you you're not allowed to go um and having the lawyers listening, it was phrases. <laughs> Raise you. <laughs> <laughs> um, having sort of like the the robot um, supervisors really kind of, you know, uh, emphasise that. And then, like you say, that obviously the pandemic's happened, and the workplace has has changed massively since then. Um, you know what we have with with Kablam is a, a <laughs> workforce which are you know grateful to be working. So this this ten percent or you know, are working in these quick, pretty atrocious conditions because they are basically glad they've got a job because otherwise they're going to be unemployed and not going to be able to, you know, afford anything. The workplace nowadays is so much different in that um, the workforce is a lot more in control of where they work and, you know, who they work for. So, you know, the idea that because we have got a bit of a labour shortage in, in the UK at the minute, the idea that you must go and work for Amazon under those conditions is, isn't yeah. quite as... Uh, impactful in 2023 as it was in 2018. The thing that really struck us reading back through this, um, and again, when you talk about like that 15 minute city thing, that's one part, but the other part is automation and especially AI, because that's the big thing at the minute is AI and what is what jobs is AI going to take from us? So although there's not that many changes in the storyline between the book and the TV show, it's still having a really big impact um, just because it's kind of keeping up to pace with what's happening in our society. Um, it's not so much, you know, Jeff Bezos that we need to worry about now. It's it's the AI chatbot Jeff Bezos who's going to come in and, you know, steal a lot of jobs that way. The TV episode has come under criticism, if that's not too harsh a word, for the fact that the TV series appears to take the side of the bots over the humans, for example, the treatment of Kira, as we mentioned earlier. I thought the book went a pretty good way towards addressing that, <clears throat> and by going into the backstory about you start off with a postman being laid off and replaced by a robot, and one of the last lines in the book is the observation that now humans are managers and the robots are doing the packing, the menial labor, rather than the vice versa. I know Pete McTighe has reportedly said that he didn't intend for the TV story to be interpreted the way that it has been. So what I liked about the book is that it did address some of the issues that fans had with it when it came out in 2018. The problem is this book was probably written a year or two ago, because I know some of the books were held over from 2022 to 2023. This book just missed being able to comment on ChatGPT 
or any of the new generative AI models that are threatening to put all industries out of business. We could well be seeing the same riots here in the uh, 2020s that you get on the fictional Kandoka in this book. Had the book been written one or two years later, we could have addressed that a lot more. Yeah, but I think just by the nature of the story, it's it's kind of adapted to that, hasn't it? It doesn't address it head on, but it's it's done it sort of coincidentally, really. I think that's, you can that's part read it of it. If you want, yeah. I mean, the, one uh, of the big problems with the TV version was people criticised that the the computer basically killed Kira and was allowed to get away with it, whereas the book explains it's Charlie's corruption, which has made it confused, evil. I mean, it even says it, it knows it's becoming evil at the beginning of it, doesn't it? So uh, that helps to explain that, because otherwise the Doctor is literally just letting it get away with murder. Yeah, I think that one of the big changes here is making the system, as it's always just referred to on the screen, a point-of-view character. So the system becomes Max, who has become an AI, who's be, developed, developed sentience and decided on a gender and a name uh, for himself and everything. So, yeah, you get you get the sense that it is a victim of Charlie as much as the other workers at Kablam are and is is trying to fight back any way it can. And it's an act of absolute desperation that makes him hate himself when he sends the the uh, the robots to kill Kira rather than I'm just this is the only way I know how to send a message is to which in the TV show it was like well and oh. he's kind of killed at the end as well I mean he's erased he's going back to square one so in a way he's punished for what he did yeah it's that's a... yeah I mean he, he's rebooted at the end and then um, Judy is given the kill switch at the end mm. so if that's not good enough then you know he has something that will will ultimately do him for good um, at the end, but like I say, I, I never had an issue with with the ending, um, you know, either on broadcast or since, you know, other people have made me aware that they have got an issue with it. So I'm I'm guessing you guys picked up on that at, at broadcast and and found it troublesome. I I didn't notice it. I just read about it on Twitter in the following weeks. I'm like, yeah, I didn't notice that at all. I think for me, the idea that the system could print a message saying "Help me," but um why couldn't it print a message to say uh charlie who works in cleaning <laughs> is yeah. killing people and is planning to kill a lot more people uh rather than kill kira who is like a total innocent lovely character uh it is the most it is well the... she kind of deserved it <laughs> she, <laughs> she was far too upbeat i mean to work with her would be unbearable i bet when she discovered she was dead half the blooming kablam cheered <laughs> Much I used work. to work with a really happy nurse, and we were so pleased when she finally left because it was unbearable <laughs> after a while. So. But, but yes, for, for, for me, uh, I thought she was a really nice character. She was the most innocent person that could have been killed. Yeah, killer. And to kill her to send a message when we've having established that the system can write messages and print them and post them to people, it seemed like at, at best the system was completely amoral and didn't have, uh, <laughs> didn't have a sense of the sanctity of human life and then the doctor goes, nothing wrong with the system <laughs> I mean, if, if you want to point out all the plot points, plot holes in Doctor <laughs> Who and reduce every, every story down for five minutes of the doctor just jumping out the TARDIS going, him, get him that's the master over there in his disguise he's, he's blowing everyone up with bubble wrap and this story is two episodes too long <laughs> <laughs> like I say, I I I just took it. It's you know what what was meant. Um, I'll I'll I've got the transcript of the original. Um, so we can kind of compare it with with the book. So yeah, again, if you haven't read the book, this is your big spoiler moment. So in the episode, you know the Doctor and Charlie are having their um, you know showdown. At the end, the the doctor says to Charlie, "This isn't a cause. You're not an activist. This is cold-blooded murder." Charlie shouts back, "We can't let the systems take control." And the doctor replies, "The systems aren't the problem. How people use and exploit the system—that's the problem. People like you." So, again, that's that's the line. I think Mark, you mentioned at the start that people find a lot quite troublesome in that episode. But mm. I always took that as, you know, yeah. If you dial it back to uh, the Amazon um, 
analogy, it's not Alexa that's the problem, it's Jeff. You know, Jeff is the one that is, you know, working these people in Amazon. Jeff's getting all the profits. What's he doing with it? He's going into space. He's blasting Bill Shatner into space. You know, it's not Amazon itself that you need to be worried about. It's Jeff. Jeff Bezos. You know, that's how I took that. Um, but again, I'm, I'm assuming that you you didn't, Mark. Uh, no, it was it was specifically the murder of Kira that that, that, that the was what had decided to perpetrate as a way of illustrating what was going on. That was the that was the thing for me. It wasn't the you know the robots being the overseers of the human workers and and, and that kind of thing. It was specifically the murder of an innocent to send a message that the system itself decided to do. But as I say the book really counterbalances that with it's an act of desperation it's sort of borderline insane it hates itself for it and, and it's charlie's fault as well yeah and, and and the idea it's focused uh, on his fancy piece yeah. yeah and it's very much like it's, it's other avenues of communication are being shut down so it's the it feels it's the only way it can send a message whereas i don't think in the tv show that comes across that the, that the system can't communicate another way because it's done the, the it's done the packing slip thing and everything it's, yeah that is made you know, throughout those those AI point of view chapters that, you know, these, mm. you know, being swamped by hate and, you know, he's trying to, you know, reach out as best as he can and whatnot. The um the the corresponding line in the book comes right at the very end and it's not delivered to Charlie. You know, the the scene goes as normal with the Doctor and Charlie up to that line um of um, this is it's just cold blooded murder, and then it just goes straight into the, the next thing. Um, it's not until the very end of the book where the doctor is given Judy the, the kill switch, where she says to Judy, The system's a tool, the doctor went on. It's the organizations that spring up around these tools that end up harming people. They're the real problem. So, again, um, Pete McTague's gone all out to really clarify, hasn't he, what he actually meant in that. Um, in that um, you know that line, that part of the the script. So, do you think that was uh, an oversight on Pete McTague's part in the original story, or do you think that's maybe Chris Chibnall script editing or working the script and not not working it out too well? I think for me, yeah, the making making Max a point of view character is what makes the difference in the book and it, it may have been too difficult to achieve that on screen because it is a computer internally screaming and and struggling with this so that would have been a difficult thing i, I suppose to bring across it's sort of um, a faceless unknown character isn't it in the in the tv show whereas yeah. in the book you can really give it that internal mm -hmm. monologue and everything so yeah maybe it was it was just uh, that you couldn't have presented that on screen i suppose i think sometimes things when you write something, you're obvious in your head, which maybe just don't come across in what you've written. So it may be everybody on the production thought that is the case. It wasn't until it was actually broadcast since you thought, oh, we've, we've kind of missed that. Well, I mean, again, I, I always read the the original, um, you know, TV stories being, yeah, um, the, the AI's killed Kira, but, you know, you're going to kill a lot more people and that's a lot worse than what the AI's done. So we're kind of looking mm -hmm. at the, you know, the much greater of two evils is, is Charlie and not the AI. Um, so that's why, you know, it's not, I've never, I never took it as a pro-capitalist story by any stretch like other people have. Um, no, I don't think that. I think it's clear that the workers are really ground down and. Yeah. You know, I, I never saw it as the doctor coming on, coming in on the side of Kablam and the AI is always cut the doctor coming in on the side of the innocent tens of thousands of people that is just about to get murdered. But anyway, that's my piece on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with that. I think it, it's, it's, I think as you said, Keith, it's that the system in the TV show gets away with it sort of thing. Mm. It's, it's, it's made its point. By I thought that was somebody. just a clever thing. I thought he could just try to point out that the system does get away with it. So yeah, well, well that is. So I, I thought that, that was a more subtle piece of writing than obviously it was intended to be. Or if that it may have been another, and just because of the criticism he got, he's, he's kind of backtracked in the book, maybe. Yeah, and I, never know, but. I suppose in like arachnids in the UK, 
you've got the guy uh, Robertson, isn't it? Yeah, getting giving away with it and walking away. So it would after giving you... a nice mercy killing to the poor things that the doctor lets starve to death. He means. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. So, laughs> but so the, whose side are you on? <laughs> the series eleven thing was of people being a bit untouchable. So I suppose it would fit with that. I suppose I just came away from it thinking, well, the system's learned that it can send a message by killing somebody. What's to say if it doesn't like things in the future? Uh, you know, it, it might not do the same thing again. But as I say, it is uh, it is much more neatly wrapped up. Uh, in the book. So. Yeah, definitely. So I think world building wise, I thought it was interesting that it was dropped. The bit about the, the fam being relatives of the first lady was dropped from the book. Yeah. I felt like in the, in the TV episode that sort of showed that, you know, the relatives of the first lady and the biggest kind of thing that she can do for them is to get them a job in a warehouse. It shows how scarce jobs are and how sort of desperate people they are that, that you know, you'd expect. And, and maybe this is just living in the UK, which is very corrupt at the moment, <laughs> where people are rewarded like massive contracts just for like being the pub landlord of a minister or something. But, but in, uh, in Kandoka, the best that they can offer is, uh, you know, like a cleaning job on, uh, on the Kandoka moon. And the other thing I wasn't sure about, and I'm still not really sure about from the book is... They say that Kablam is the biggest retailer in the galaxy, but so how wide is its sort of distribution? Because it, it can chase the TARDIS down and deliver something, but then they only talk about delivering to Kandoka, don't they? And all the postman droids at the end are only going to send things to Kandoka. Which makes you think, if hardly anybody's got a job, who is buying all the stuff from Kablam anyway? So I, I felt like that was, you know, they went into the where they live and, and what it's like living there, not just working there. But then I wasn't quite sure about the wider implications of it. I missed that entirely. I assumed he was sending them out all over the universe. So I missed that. I thought uh, there's a line that says it's going to kill X number of people on Kandoka. Maybe that's just the nearest place to teleport to because he's had to store up the energy for the teleport. So maybe that's just a necessity thing. And it's it, Kandoka being the nearest place. They're the people they want to mistrust. And I suppose that's where the workforce is coming from as well. It's like, yeah, this is like a pyramid scheme, like the employees are just like buying things for each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The entire thing will now collapse because they yeah. <laughs> working at the moment. <laughs> maybe, I've, maybe I've answered my own question there or I just overthought it. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, it's like, it says there's like so many of the population are unemployed, which means there's a percentage of the population who is employed. So presumably they're the people doing the purchasing, mm. which is kind of like what, what the world is now, isn't it? Yeah, true. If you want to get very deep, I mean, people buy stuff from Amazon knowing, I mean, I do myself, but I buy stuff from Amazon knowing what the conditions of the people working there is, but then I like their service, and who am I to take the job away from that person just because I'm morally ambiguous about it? I might feel uncomfortable, but do I have the right to like inflict unemployment on that person, even if they may have a horrible job? They may prefer that to having no job, so I can't make that judgment. It is very convenient. Hmm. It's cheap and as well. And it's next day delivery. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got uh, Kablam Prime, then. I did like the, <laughs> the irony of the fact I was buying the book Kablam from Amazon wasn't wasted on me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and especially as you flick through the, uh, the last four or five pages of the book, which are all blank apart from a little message that says, Help me. I so, wait. I didn't. I didn't see that. Yep. It's almost as if. Uh, oh gosh, you're right. Pete oh, McTeague, wow. knowing that most people will buy these from Amazon, has put that last cheeky little joke in. <laughs> I had. I have seen that for the first time at minute thirty-nine of recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as they uh, as they get pushed through letterboxes from Amazon, there's uh, yeah the, the same message that the doctor receives is, is in there as well. I was a bit disappointed it wasn't wrapped in bubble wrap. Unfortunately, it just came in a regular envelope. So. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't quite meta enough. <laughs> so, as we said, we get a bit more of the backstory of Charlie. We learn that his parents were terrorists, effectively, that they were blowing up... Freedom fighters? Freedom fighters, <laughs> or, yeah. What, what <laughs> Uh, and they were killed in an explosion that they themselves caused when they were trying to blow up, um, uh, I don't know, 
it's not really clear, is it, whether it's like a robot factory or some kind of automated place. And he's then the orphaned. Gotham Villas. Yeah, he's he's orphaned and, and, and taken into care at that point. And the second reading we've got from the brilliant Nathan Bottomley goes into that scene. Charlie chewed at his fingernails. He didn't like it here. Sitting alone in the cold, stark, impersonal space, he wondered how much trouble he was in. Wondered where his parents were and how much trouble they were in too. He'd been sat on an uncomfortable wooden chair, feet dangling just above the floor, for what felt like an eternity before the door slid open and two Kandokan security officers entered. They didn't look happy, so Charlie braced himself. He was only eight years old, but he already knew how to talk himself out of trouble. First, turn on the charm, his dad had taught him, and if that didn't fly, try the waterworks. Charlie hedged his bets and cracked a teary smile. The officers sat opposite, with a cold steel desk between them. As Charlie stared back at them, he realised they looked strangely nervous rather than angry. The larger one, a grey-haired man with a big red nose, spoke first. Charlie, I'm afraid I have some very bad news for you. I didn't do anything, Charlie replied in his most innocent tone. We know you didn't, the second security officer, a young woman, assured him. She had big green eyes that reminded Charlie of a cat. Big Nose continued. You were with your parents today, correct? Charlie nodded. But I stayed outside the factory. I didn't go in. Your parents went in, though, didn't they? Charlie knew better than to incriminate them. Nope, he answered confidently. We know they did, Charlie. The man leant forward. Because we found them, or what's left of them. Charlie was confused. He looked at the Catwoman, who was now glaring at the man, and then met Charlie's bewildered stare. Charlie, they were inside when... when the accident happened. Charlie watched Big Nose tut, roll his eyes, and lean back in his chair. Accident, he scoffed under his breath. The Catwoman, meanwhile, regarded Charlie with compassion. I'm so sorry, but they were killed in the explosion. Charlie stared back at them for a very long time. Did anybody else hope his roommate was going to be Taron Capel? I did. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you very much to Nathan for those two brilliant readings. It's interesting, um, there's there's one character that doesn't really get fleshed out much, in fact gets paired back a bit, which is um, Lee Mack's character. Uh, Is it Dan? Yeah, he gets fewer jokes, doesn't he? He does. He gets he gets yeah. a lot shorter shrift. I mean, it's it's one of the one of the highlights of the of the story is you know having that that character. Um, you know, you, you have the joke about the the first you know family of the first lady, and then you get um, you know Dan coming in with his jokes. It did throw us a little bit reading the Thirteenth Doctor novel with Dan in it, um, played yeah. by a comedian. Yeah. But <laughs> we got there in the end. But you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was interesting that his his. No introduction, you know, the bit where he's walking in and cracking the jokes and, you know, he's, he's, he's basically blank, blinking, you miss it in the book. I think we get an extra scene in the book, which I don't recall from either television or looking at the online transcript. In the book, we get a scene where he wakes up in that locked room in the basement. Ah, yes. And the mm. name of one of the previous employees who disappeared before him has been scratched into the table. No, we don't see the package materialize. We don't see him bubble pop himself to death as if he were Noah from the Ark in space. But we do get that one <laughs> added bit leading up to his death, which establishes what's going to happen to Kira later on. I suspect that was written for TV and then cut for time, and that's why it shows up in the novelization. Yeah, and I suppose if that had been on the TV episode, it would have made it scarier knowing what was going to happen to Kira as soon as you saw her in the same environment, in the same situation, you're sort of counting down to her death then, aren't you? Which would have been a good thing, really, because that would have created, like, uh, 
bit of tension. We get um, some references to K9 in, in, in this book, which is uh, some of these sort of references, which I suppose speaks to what you were talking about earlier, Jason, about who is the demographic for this book, because there's a lot more nods to classic series yeah. stories than we get on the TV, isn't there? The, the, the AI identifies the Doctor as someone that can help because there's various databases that talk about the Doctor helping out on Marinus, Argolis, yes. and Terra Alpha. There's references to K9. There's the Celery one, which apparently is reinstated from the original script. And the Seventh Doctor and Ace showing up. That's basically yeah. exactly what the Seventh Doctor and Ace did in the Happiness Patrol. They show up on a planet and foment a workers' revolution within 24 hours and then leave. So and you can imagine that. Kandoka was Terra Alpha. Employment, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yes, any Doctor who... 21st century story that references Marinus is all right with me. I'm okay. I'm all here for about the Marinus references. Yeah, and I suppose they're all stories where there's an element of subjugation, I think, isn't there? Because the machine on Marinus is, is kind of subjugating the population, and um, Terra Alpha, obviously, the Happiness Patrol. So I suppose there's a bit of a theme there where the Max has been looking for similar situations, maybe, and how, how they were overthrown. Yeah, Charlie and the Vore try and like get rid of uh, oppressors, and they both get punished for it. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> but there was no reference to the planet Dulcus and the Dominators of the Twelve Galaxies. So that's probably why Fraser has subtracted half a point from his rating. <laughs> the Ten Galaxies, Jason, as well, you know. <laughs> so it's more of an explicit Thasmin bit here as yeah. well, isn't there? Than um, than we get yeah. on the. Uh, then we get in series 11, I think in writing saying after, after Yaz has asked the doctor, she can return the, the pendant to Dan's daughter. They embrace. And then it says she lingered there for a moment, not wanting to let go. It was the doctor who pulled away, waving the gadget in her hands. Need to get this to Judy. Yaz nodded. And as the doctor hurried out of the TARDIS, she found she couldn't take her eyes off her. So I wonder if, uh, yeah, maybe some of the other novelizations, if we get any more from Series 11, will sort of seed that a little bit more. That must be soulless. I missed that entirely. <laughs> <laughs> See, I noticed that right away, because on television, there's really no hint of Thasman until The Haunting of Villa Diodati. There's a very mm. brief reference to Yaz having a thing for somebody, and then we don't find out who it is until much, much later on. This, I suspect, is McTighe coming back in and adding retroactive continuity. That was probably not part of the original script. That yeah. was my guess. You say that, but if you go back to Arachnids in the UK, then Yaz's mom is on the case. Yaz's mom is calling it straight from episode four. You know, who is this woman and, you know, what relationship are you in with her? So I think it's, true. it's, it's there. You know, I think, you know... I, when I said at the start that, you know, Kablam felt more like a traditional Doctor Who for me and it was more comfortable and easy to watch, you know, in 2018, you come back to 2023, I think, um, you know, I'm enjoying the Chibnall era a lot more than perhaps I did at the time. Um, and I think, you know, part of that reason is is going back, you know, without that expectation of, you know, the era is going to be just, you know, you know, as plotted and as character driven as, as um, RTD and Moffat's time, and and seeing what Chibnall's actually doing, and I think he's he's a lot. The the difference with Chibnall, he's a, he's a lot of a lot more subtle writer than um, than his his two predecessors. You know, the, something like Thasmin, if you want to call it that. I really don't, but we'll go with it. Um, <laughs> you know, if that was a, a Moffat or a or a rusty thing, it would be in your face. Every week, you would know what was going on. It would be as obvious as the Doctor and Rose in season, in series two. Um, you know, Murray Gold would be playing strings all over the place every time they look at each other. So, <laughs> I think, you know, it is a lot more subtle on the behalf of, of Chris Chibnall. Nine million, it's like nine million people watched it, whereas opposed to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think in that, I think in that specific example, though, they have admitted that it was in reaction to. Twitter. Let's fans. all say the word Twitter. Twitter. Not X, Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you know, it was in reaction to fan theories in right. a way, wasn't it? Or fan reaction. I think they've, they've said that since, haven't they? That... 
Yeah, I mean, they the, the picked up on it. They included it with like two episodes to go. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they had to nix it almost straight away. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't... But it made a lot of people very happy, so good luck to them, Brown. Yeah. You know, I, I looked at it as something that was sort of seeded in season, series 11, you know, developed a little bit in, in 12 and then rounded off in, in 13 and sort of power of the Doctor. And shot down in flames with sea devils. Um, another thing that stuck out for me was the um, description of the sonic screwdriver, um, and the, the kind of the, exp- works. the explanation how that works. You know, is kind of, you know, it's TARDIS tech, it's psychic. So basically, just point it at something, think about what you want to do, and it'll do it. And I thought that was really clever. Um, I thought that really kind of. Um, you know, kind of explains how it can do everything. Yes, very much so. How it's 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 you know it's a conduit for your desires. It's not just a it's... screwdriver anymore. It can scan things. It can do, you know, build a cabinet. It can do whatever else you want it to do. It can end the power of three because they've got no plot left. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's evolved through the new series, hasn't it? Because I remember in the Empty Child, it has like setting numbers for yep. different materials. Right, it has they they have to choose the the, the setting number for barbed wire. And then in Let's Kill Hitler, they say that the interface is psychic, which kind of explains because the doctor scans and sometimes holds it up and there's no readout or anything, but it, it tells him what he wants to know, whether he's scanned somebody medically or scanned a device or something. So they say in that one, the interface is psychic. And now we learn that the interface goes the other way as well, that you think about what you want to achieve, whether it's opening a filing cabinet in this case or whatever. So I feel like it's, it's gradually evolved across the new series Doctors so that it is, it's now just... Yeah, it's uh, it tells you what you want to know. Yeah. You tell it what you want it to do, and it's it's fully sort of psychic. Well, the fourteenth Doctor's Sonic just got advertised on Kerblam in real life and sold out in about twenty four hours. So it's clearly subliminal advertising <laughs> to buy more Sonics. Graham takes Twirly home in the book, bring, or brings him back aboard the TARDIS, which is which is nice. But because it didn't happen in the TV show, we know it. He's not really going to turn up again, is he? I was hoping to see Twirly and Power of the Doctor. You know, they're sitting around the conference table. You know, I'm Mel, I'm Ace, I'm William Russell, <laughs> and I'm Twirly! Yeah. I like, I like the idea that Twirly, and this is in the TV episode as well, is a bit like the talking toaster from Red Dwarf. Yeah. I think they could have leaned into that a bit more. That uh, the, I don't know if you've seen Red Dwarf, Jason. The, the talking toaster just tries to bring every conversation back around to toasted products and... Uh, <laughs> If Twirly just brought every conversation around to upselling and cross-selling, that would have been... Uh, I toast, uh, therefore I am. If I don't toast, yeah. why does make to do repair me? Yeah. <laughs> if you don't want to upsell, why did it bring me back online? Because <laughs> Graham persuades the Doctor by saying, oh, it can be a friend for your robot dog, because there's, there's a couple of mentions of K9 in this one. Um, so that's, that's the meeting that we want, isn't it? We want K9 and Twirly teaming up in a spin-off. Yep. Maybe the Senator Graham sets up Kablam in the future using the technology. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, it's all deeply so significant. paradox. Mm. Give, uh, give Big Finish a few more years. We'll get uh, get Bradley Walsh online. <laughs> get Bradley Walsh on board. It'll be uh, the Twirly and Graham box set. <laughs> the fam do get a nice adventure with K9 in the Wizard of Oz crossover book. So it's, it's, it's nice in the sense that Graham learns about K9 in this one and then they do get a nice little uh, adventure with him in that. Windmill 347 to trap one. How do you read me? Over. Any, any final thoughts on Kablam? I mean, it's, it's a slight novel, I think. If you want to look, look for faults, it is quite a, a slim tome. You know, I had kind of 15 minutes spare before the start of this recording, so I read it a, a second time. Um <laughs> It's and and it's kind of to go back to you know where we pitch in this podcast. Where do you think Pete McTeague's pitching this novel? Because it's quite slim. I think some of the um, vocabulary that he uses, things like um, there's like Bosch and Bunkers throughout. You know, struck us as being a bit um, not what you would expect from like a book for adults. So, what what do you guys think? Where do you think he's pitching this? Which audience? I wasn't sure. He seems to be writing ages 8 to 12, but he also describes Judy's childhood bedroom as shambolic, 
which is not a word you would ordinarily expect to fit in that sentence in a book aimed at 8 to 12-year-olds. I think they're aimed at middle-aged Doctor Who fans who have <laughs> who've got a little bit of income and want to complete their collections. Uh, yes. And it fills that uh, beautifully. I'd like to see him uh, do uh, have a, like a portmanteau novel where he novelises all his um, Blu-ray adverts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he could flesh those out wonderfully, especially the latest one with the Mara. That'd yes. be really good. Yeah, I think I think anyone could pick could pick the book up though. I think yeah, yeah, whether it's a kid who is just sort of discovering Doctor Who for the first time, or like you say, the sort of jaded older Doctor Who fan that's got a full set of Target novels and doesn't want it to fall out of date. On a serious note, though, it's a nice thing for like parents to read to their kids, maybe something like that. Mm. Who are like perhaps not old enough to read the books themselves, but like Doctor Who. So I think that's a good way to. Yeah, that's a uh, bite-sized chapters and everything, isn't it? For... I remember Target must be read to me as a kid and like terrifying me before I went to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so naturally I didn't. I thought the book was a good page turner. Strictly speaking, the book doesn't need to exist. I mean, in 1976, 1985, yes, every TV story has to be novelized because there are no reruns and very few VHSs and no streaming. We don't need a novelization of every single new series story anymore because they exist. They're saturating the market. So these books only exist for completist fans. If you're going to write a novelization, you should have something more to say than what we got on television. Rose adds subplots. Day of the Doctors is very experimental. Um, a book like The Crimson Horror adds a whole new set of subplots and turns <laughs> the actual story, yes. TV story <laughs> into a brief parenthetical and everything else is new. Yeah. There wasn't that much that was new here to justify a new story, so this book exists solely on the charm of the author. Pete McTighe is great at tugging at your emotions. Mm. He takes all these characters that nobody remembers, like the David Goodison Davros or Vicky, and he gives them really strong, solid, emotional trailers for the DVD collection, including, including the cutest baby sea devil of all time. So this book exists to showcase his charm and his skill as a writer. Even though it's longer than almost any target, it's 165 pages if you include that mystery surprise text <laughs> in one of the blank pages at the end of the book. The pages turn fast. It's a compulsive read. I enjoy reading it. I'll probably read it again for my podcast when I cycle back around to the new series. It's not the most essential book, but it's a good page turner and it uses its time wisely. And it gives us a couple of new things, like a cameo for the Seventh Doctor and Ace, which I guess, if they hadn't already released all the Seventh Doctor and Ace <laughs> Blu-rays already, this would be a trailer for uh, yes. season 26. <laughs> but, I mean, in terms of purpose, though, I mean, a criticism was laid against him, and he has, like, answered it in this book, hasn't he? So, yeah. I mean, if a, if a book needs to have a purpose, Quite. it's kind of it, I suppose, for this, yeah. Yeah, I suppose if you wanted to... Yeah, sort of um, clarify something. It's an, and it's a nice opportunity to, to do that. And I know that Pete McTighe is a massive Target book fan as well. I think one of the Doctor Who magazine special editions that's about the Target novelizations. I remember there's a big article by him about growing up with them, collecting them, collecting them again in hardback. And so, and he's an absolute aficionado of the range. So it must be irresistible uh, if you are a lifelong fan of them to to add to them. Yeah. Definitely. And Pete, if you're listening this far, you are welcome on Doctor Who Literature anytime you want. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our review of the novelization of Kablam. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, thank you very much for listening at home. Uh, we really appreciate you listening. And, and as all podcasts do, appreciate if you subscribe and leave us a star rating or a nice review that will help other Doctor Who fans find the podcast. That would be uh, that would be fantastic. In the meantime, you can find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Join us next time where another panel will be discussing something else from the world of Doctor Who. Alexa, please order one copy of Kerblam for every customer in the galaxy and bill it to Mark's credit card. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you. And remember, if you want it, Kablam it! <laughs> Thank you.